If you have a Bible, please open it to Exodus chapter 25. If you don't have one with you, you can borrow one from us. You can find it in the pocket of the seat of the, of the pew in front of you, and you can find uh, Exodus chapter 25 on page 60 of that Bible. Moby Dick is known as one of the, if not the, classic um, figures of American literature. It features a murderous whale, a vengeance-fixated captain, a great chase, and disaster. And yet at the same time, it has a lot, a lot of information about the makeup and the nature of whaling boats, how whales should be classified as fish, the methods of killing and harvesting the whales, the biology of whales, the uses of whales, how good whale fat is for cooking. Here's a bit about how they harness the fat off of a 90,000-pound, 52-foot-long whale. In the words of Herman Melville, the mates, armed with their long spades, began cutting a hole in the body for the insertion of the hook just above the nearest of the two side fins. This done, a broad semicircular line is cut round the hole the hook is inserted, and the main body of the crew, striking up a wild chorus, now commence in heaving one dense crowd at the windlass. When instantly the entire ship careens over on her side, every bolt in her starts like the nail heads of an old house in frosty weather, she trembles, quivers, and nods her frightened mastheads to the sky. More and more she leans over to the whale, while every grasping heave of the windlass is answered by a help, helping heave from the billows, till at last a swift and startling snap is heard. And with a great swash, the ship rolls upward and backward from the whale, and the triumphant tackle rises into sight, dragging after it the disengaged, semicircular end of the first strip of blubber. Now as the blubber envelops the whale precisely as a rind does an orange, so it is stripped off the body precisely as an orange is sometimes stripped by spiralizing it. It's fascinating stuff that you were not expecting this morning, I guarantee. And I also guarantee that you will never peel and eat an orange exactly the same way again. <laughs> it doesn't sound like much of a bestseller, but it is a classic of literature. It is filled with memorable characters and names, Ahab, Moby, Ishmael, Starbuck, and the Pequod. But you'll be forgiven for thinking that the novel could have done without a lot of the details that it provides. Why did Herman include this, this information? Sure, it sets the scene, but enough is enough. I, I don't mean to say that this is an isolated passage. He goes on for chapters this way. It also seems to be somewhat distracting from the center point. The center point is this obsessive captain and his desire to kill the thing that has almost killed him. What does this have to do with the main idea and storyline being pursued? This is the same kind of reaction I think Christians often feel of as they are reading through the scripture, the story of Exodus is enthralling, it's captivating, it's filled with action and filled with surprises. And then you reach chapter 25, and all of the action seems to stop on a dime. And you get a very, very long speech from God about the minutia of the tabernacle, of what it should look like, how it should be formed, the very building materials of it. Everything is laid out in grave detail. And the Christian oftentimes thinks exactly what the Christian might think if they read Moby Dick. Why give us this? I don't worship at the tabernacle. I don't make these offerings. We don't have this priesthood. What does this 
have for me? Well, like the whale digressions in Moby Dick, which I actually think are important, you can sign up for my newsletter in the back and I can tell you all about it. I think that the issue of the tabernacle is centrally important to everything that Exodus is trying to say. It is important not to just what Exodus is trying to say, but to the entire scheme of the Bible. Now, because the information regarding the tabernacle is detailed and long, it takes up seven chapters. We will not be reading all seven chapters. I still want to implore you to read those on your own. It takes slightly under 30 minutes at a, at a decent pace to read those. It is long, but not too long. But I will be pointing at the passage, so please be keeping your fingers there. We will start by reading the first eight verses from chapter 25, if you would follow with me in your copy of the scripture. In Exodus chapter 25, we read this. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twisted linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense, aunts, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastplate, and let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst." Let us first talk, then, about the provision of the tabernacle. If we were to read the entirety of the text, you would find that the tabernacle is not quite as large of a structure as you might think. It's about 45 feet long, about 15 feet wide, 15 feet high. If we wanted to, we remove these steps and most of the pews, we could fit the tabernacle inside this current existing building with room to spare. <clears throat> Even though it wasn't gargantuan and large, it was incredibly ornate. Gold and bronze and silver are asked for by the Lord so that he can plaster them everywhere. The outer coverings to make it waterproof and weatherproof were very valuable, not to mention the expense of the dyes that he has listed here. Purple and blue dyes are known for their grave expense in the ancient world. So why do this? Why make such an elaborate structure, especially just for a traveling worship center, and especially from a poor people? Remember, this people is essentially just a people who have been released from centuries of slavery. They're vagabonds in the desert, a migratory mass of refugees who have no real home and no source of income. Why ask it of them? Why take a contribution from them? How are they going to provide this? Well, the answer is, of course, the Lord has already provided it to them. We remember upon their leaving, we were warned several times about it happening, and then when it did happen, that the Lord causes the Egyptians not just to thrust the Israelites out of their midst, but to send them with gifts. The Israelites are going to look at their neighbors, and they're going to say, give us some gold, and they will say, I will gladly give you gold. Be on your way. It was, as it were, reparation for their years of slavery. And now God calls for them to give this very thing back to him. Why does God call for them to give it back? He does it because he wants them to buy into what he's doing. 
He wants them to have a hand in what he's doing. He wants them to understand that this is not just something that he is asking for them, but that he has provided for them so that they could give back to him out of the generosity and the gladness of their own hearts. Same happens to us today. We're saved by the word of the gospel. We're saved because we have heard the word of the gospel preached, because somebody has preached it to us. We heard the news of the gospel. It came to us. And God then calls us in our maturity as we become confident in the word of the Lord to go back out and to spread that word of the gospel so that others might hear as well. He gives us a role in the building of his kingdom, even as he has brought us into the kingdom by that same very means. And this is where I would, again, just briefly mention Lottie Moon. It is important that we fund missions where people cannot hear the word of God unless we take it to them. So we partner with people all around the world to send messengers of the gospel to places where no one has ever been before, where no one has ever heard of the Bible or of Scripture or of Yahweh, our Lord, or of Jesus Christ and his beautiful sacrifice for us. We're reminded that this is the very thing that Jesus Christ has done for us. 2 Corinthians 8. Paul writes that you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. What grace is that? That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Not all of the families are going to be Levites, and certainly they're not all going to be from the line of Aaron. But every single family can contribute to the growing of the tabernacle, to the building of the tabernacle. They might not serve there. They might not have any access to it, especially into the Holy of Holies, but they will indeed be able to say, I helped build the house of the Lord. So likewise, we have our hands through the work of the kingdom forever in the work of building the kingdom of God. That is the provision of the tabernacle. Let's talk then, secondly, about those priests and speak of the priests of the tabernacle. If you would, skip up and begin reading in chapter 28 with me. We'll read the first five verses there. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful, whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons, to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. The priests, the main priests, Aaronic priests, anyway, are first mentioned here in chapter 28. They are the ones who are going to serve in this moving, mobile sanctuary known as the tabernacle. And it's interesting that the very first thing that is mentioned about them before anything is mentioned that should be done for them, done by them, is to mention the nature of their clothing. We make a lot of our clothing by making very little of it. 
We, we want to be a place where people can come and go kind of as they are, and that's perfectly fine. And so we want to make a point to say that you don't have to wear a suit when you come here. You don't have to be dressed to the hilts. We are glad that you can come dressed however you might want to be dressed. That was not to be the way for Aaron and his sons. They could not just approach the Lord however they wanted to. They were, as it were, dressed to the hilt. They were to wear a turban with a gold rim. They were to have a fine linen robe overlaid with a blue tunic and an outermost layer that is blue. The ephod, this plate, was to be worn by them with precious stones set into it, with gold chains holding it on to their shoulders where there were more precious stones. I don't know how all of that would go over in Paris and Milan, but it would have gone over well in Jerusalem. They would have looked amazing, an incredible rich display of material and goods. The point is that God is both glorious and beautiful. He is both perfect in all things. He is light of light, pure radiance, and full in perfections, and he lacks nothing that is good. He has every worthy perfection as perfection. And so the priests are to do everything they can to display that, even if it's in a limited way, but in the best way they can. They are to show to the people as they mirror God to the people that your God is glorious and worthy of all of the attention and money that you can give to him. And to be fair, we still do this. Not with dress, but with action. Notice in the verses that come in 28, 6 through 8. They shall make an ephod of gold, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns of fine twined linen skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be, shall be made like it and be of one piece with it of gold, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It's not for nothing that in First Peter, after he calls all of us a priesthood of believers. He speaks specifically to women and asks for them to not adorn themselves externally with the same kind of things that we read here, the braiding of hair, and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. You're not to be like those priests you see, but let your adoring be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. You are to adorn yourself so that the world would know the goodness and the glory of Jesus Christ who has called you. And here for the, the women, it is meant specifically in light of their unbelieving husbands. But it goes for all of us. You might not like it, but the world thinks Christ is as it sees its people are. You image God to the world. So friends, let your actions model Jesus to other. Don't think that the world won't notice because it will. And they will form opinions based on how they see and know of your actions. That is a burden that priests carry and you've been called to be priests. Part of their dress is not just to image God to the outer world, but it is also for them as they picture the people to God. Both on their shoulders and on the breastplate, they are to wear this reminder of the nation. They were not just servants of God, but they were to be servants of the people in 28.15 and then later in 29. 
<clears throat> you shall make a breastplate of judgment in skilled work. In the style of the ephod, you shall make it of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, you shall make it. Then in verse 29, so Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel, which are They've got stones embedded in this, and each of the 12 stones has one of the names of the, the people of Israel, the 12 tribes. Shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastplate of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. Priests were, in the ancient Near East, in many ways, second only to kings. Because they were the spokespeople for God, they got to tell the people what they ought to do, what they should do, and how they were supposed to do it. And God here sets before Aaron and his brothers the exact opposite thing. The people don't work for you, Aaron, but you work for the people. You are not simply imaging me to them and standing in authority over them, but you are to enter into before my presence. And when you do that, you are imaging them to me. You are to remember always and have this heavy on your heart that you are doing this for the people of Israel. And it wasn't just for a section of the people, not just for that tribe that he really might have liked, whatever the high priest was that year, but for all of the people to remember the tribes of Dan and Manasseh so far away, to remember them before the Lord as well. In chapter 29, we read that the priests are to be consecrated, set aside before God. They have blood applied to them, meaning that they too needed to be purified from their sins. They weren't priests because they were higher and holier and greater than all the rest of the people. They were priests simply because God chose them to be priests. They were just like everyone else. They were, however, to be sanctified and set apart. The priests were the go-between from God to the rest of the nation. They symbolized God to the people and the people before God. And that brings us to our third point, the pattern of the tabernacle. God asks for a number of different materials because he has particular import for each and every one of them. If you read through this section, it is amazing to think of how detailed God is being with every single thing that he's asking from the Israelites. God takes incredible care to make sure that everything in the tabernacle is formed and fit to the design that he wants. Not only does he lay out the dimensions of every single part, of the entirety of the structure, of the inner holy of holies, he elaborates on the materials that should be used, not just on the inside, but on the outside as well. What kind of designs are to be woven into the fabric? The type of materials that are to be used. He gives instructions on what we would think are seemingly unimportant or unnecessary bits. How far down the grate is to be on the altar. How to build the supports. How to fasten the main structure together. How to make the entire thing mobile. If, if the Israelites were good at anything, it wouldn't be war, which God has already had them engage in. It would be building stuff. That's exactly what they did in Egypt. You'd think that they would be okay with this. God could just say, I want something about 45 feet long, about 15 feet high, and 15 feet wide. Build it. But he doesn't do that. He's, he takes incredible attention to detail throughout all of this. And even in the places where we think God might leave some room, after all, he can't in words describe what these cherubim are going to be exactly. Nevertheless, he seems to imply that his spirit will so move in the workers that he has chosen ahead by name to do the work, that he has given them insight into what he wants as well. 
There is nothing left here up to the imagination of man. God has designed it. He has planned it. He has given it all that is needed to make his people make what he wants happen. There is a reason for this. It's because the tabernacle is a pattern for what God desires and wants. I'll give you three of these things that are mixed together. They're all kind of part of one whole picture that we'll kind of wrap up at the end, but I want to give you three different patterns that we see here. First is the pattern of heaven. Moses has clearly shown something on the mountain that he is to pattern the entire tabernacle and sanctuary around. If you go back to chapter 25, right after the passage that we read in verse 9, God tells Moses, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so shall you make it. What Moses sees is nothing less than the heavenly throne room of God. And God says, as I'm showing this to you, this is exactly what you are to make down on the earth. That it is to be a model, a replica of what you see up here in heaven. That is following the pattern of heaven. As you go to the Holy of Holies, this section of the tabernacle that only one man was allowed to enter once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Only the high priest was to enter it. There's basically just one major item. That one major item has two different pieces to it, and it contains something. Both of those pieces are unfortunately poorly named. The first is the ark. The ark is not a boat. It is literally just a box. It's just an empty box that we will then fill with something. We can't change the name of it now because everyone in here has seen Indiana Jones. So... That box is laid with gold, and it's got three things in it. It's got the tablets of stone, on which God presumably wrote the Ten Commandments. It has a jar that is filled with manna, and it has Aaron's staff, which budded, which we haven't gotten to yet. That then has a lid that will be made for it. It's just a lid. However, the ESV, if you read through, is going to call it the mercy seat. The problem is that it's not actually a seat. It's more of a footstool. It's called a mercy seat because it is said that the Lord dwells there, which is the same word that Hebrew uses for sit there, but it uses a number of other occasions to speak about the feet of the Lord being there. Psalms 99 and 132 speak of Israel worshiping at God's footstool. Isaiah 60, 13 indicates that the place of the temple was a place for God's feet. The ark and its lid was nothing but a footstool for God. And that is important. It's important because the idea that you get here is really simple. That God sits on his true throne in heaven while his feet come down and sit on the temple on the earth. This allows for God to be both with his people on the earth and still the Lord of all heaven and earth. And it's symbolic. Yes, it's truly symbolic. God can be everywhere and is everywhere at once. But for the Israelites, this is incredibly symbolic. That while God is near to them and can attune himself to their particular problems, it never means that he somehow leaves his throne as the God of all the universe. He is in both places at once. The temple becomes something of a wormhole then between the heavens and the earth. God dwells in the heavens with his people yet still here on earth. There is the pattern of heaven. Secondly, there is the pattern of Eden. Likewise, the temple and the tabernacle before it are adorned with much that ought to remind us of Eden. Not simply the fact that God's presence is there, which is a dead giveaway, 
But upon the Holy of Holies, there are, are engraved into the curtain seraphim, the same angelic beings that are said to be present at the exit of the Garden of Eden with flaming sword to kill anyone who comes back in. And God even says, if anyone enters into the Holy of Holies unauthorized, they will die. It seems like those seraphim on the curtains are to do the exact same thing. The cherubim are there. The menorah, the seven-branched light, candelabra, if you will, is, I think, meant to be a picture of the tree of life. It is to be made with almond flowers, having pictured it on the, the gold of the menorah. Almonds are often associated with springtime because they, they, the trees themselves bloom very early, and the root word sounds something like awaken, both of which are nice metaphors for life itself. And as you read through the rest of the Bible, we realize very clearly that darkness is associated with death and sheol, and light is associated with life. This tree, with all of its branches, seven perfect branches, carries with it light. It is the light of Eden. It is the tree of life. The showbread itself, not made in the tabernacle, made outside the tabernacle, nevertheless is always to be present in the tabernacle, as though it appeared made without labor and without toil, just as the promise was in the garden. Outside, there is labor and there is toil. Out in the world, there is labor and toil. In here, there is simply provision. The presence of flowers woven and carved into surfaces are to remind us that there is an overflow of life here. The tabernacle is to be a pattern in the Garden of Eden, which is a pattern of heaven, which is, thirdly, a pattern of nothing less than creation itself. This is built some, somewhat off of the pattern of Eden. As soon as you think of Eden, you likely think of creation. But God seems to be recreating the world here. In 25.1, which we've already read, in this fairly innocuous statement at the beginning, the Lord said to Moses, and then the Lord keeps saying and keeps saying and keeps saying and keeps saying and keeps saying. We're not told that, but we know that he is the one who is speaking and he speaks like that, and he speaks like that for a good five chapters without us ever being told that it's the Lord who is speaking, seeming that we can understand that it's the Lord who is speaking because we heard that once and no one else has been said to have been speaking. But then all of a sudden, when we get to chapter 30, something weird happens. All of a sudden, in chapter 30, verse 11, we hear this rather normal phrase again, the Lord said to Moses, Mind you, the Lord has never stopped talking to Moses, but we hear that he is saying something different again. We might think, well, maybe it's just to remind us that the Lord is speaking to Moses. But then we realize something is happening in chapters 30 and 31. God just continues to tell us that he is the one speaking. That particular verse happens five more times. In chapter 30, not only in verse 11, but then in verse 17, and in verse 22, and in verse 34, and then in chapter 31. Both times, at the beginning of chapter 31, verse 1, and then again in verse 12. The Lord speaks to Moses seven times, just as he spoke into creation seven times. And to drive the point home, the seventh time is what? Let's read in verse 12 of chapter 31. And the Lord spoke to Moses, we might want to put in there, for the seventh time, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. 
For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. He's saying, six days I made it, the seventh day I rested. He says, that is what the tabernacle is meant to imply. I've spoken six times. The seventh time is telling you that you are to rest. Exactly as I spoke six days of creation, the seventh day I told you I rested. He re-ups it. He says, it's a reminder of the very way in which I've created things, meaning it's a reminder in the way I'm now creating them again. It drives the point, all of these, The tabernacle was meant not just to be a reminder of Eden, but of the very creation itself. And put together, they're meant to show the people the importance and the centrality of worship of God. The worship of God in his presence, in a perfect, idyllic state of rest, is the goal and end result of the entirety of creation. That's what all of these patterns built up mean. That God desires the worship of his people in rest in a state of perfection and holiness and righteousness as the end result of all of creation. This is the end that we ourselves are striving toward with God, that we might be in his presence, worshiping with perfect health, with wholeness, with holiness, with joy and rest forever. The design of the tabernacle is meant to drive that point home. The pattern of the tabernacle is meant to drive that point home. But that, in turn, brings us to our last point this morning, the promise of the tabernacle. In all of this, the tabernacle seems to be the center of the promise that God has made. Immediately, our minds go back to Genesis 12, where he makes these promises. God, in Genesis 3, curses the man and the woman, and all of humanity is cursed in them. But he says to Abraham, I will bless you. And all of the nations of the world shall be blessed through you. The curse will come undone. I will undo it, and I will bless you. And the tabernacle seems to be that very thing. No longer will I be distant. No longer will, as we sing in joy to the world, thorns be found in my creation. But I will be with you. You will be at rest. All will be well. The temple seems to be promising that all over again. The the issue is, though, that the very nature of the tabernacle guarantees that the purpose of the tabernacle cannot be completed by the tabernacle. There is a separation of God from the people. Even if it's only a curtain, it is a curtain that would give you death. The tabernacle is a place of sacrifice. It's built that way, which means so long as it stands, people will always need blood to come near to the Lord. Hebrews 9.8 talks about the, the outer place from the Holy of Holies this way. The Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened so long as the first section is standing. So long as there is an altar for sacrifice, you, friend, can't get to God. The tabernacle promises presence with God, but it also guarantees that you can't get there. Sin 
isn't done away with. The temple and the tabernacle symbolize Eden, but it symbolizes it. It's not Eden. It symbolizes presence, but that presence is not immediate to all. It symbolizes rest, but it cannot give it. So the promise is made again, and I think made more completely in the tabernacle, but it cannot be completed in the tabernacle. Those promises can't be completed until Jesus comes, in whom the fullness of God dwells, not as on a footstool, but the fullness of deity in human flesh, who walks among us, talks among us, who was greater than the tabernacle and even the greater temple that was to come. For he could himself enter into the real and true heavenly temple, not simply a model of the temple, not, not a, a reflection of the temple, but the true temple of God himself and make true and better and lasting, complete and forever atonement for us and our sin. The tabernacle cannot fulfill the promise of God, but it does point to one who can. Jesus is that one. He brings forward a better Eden, for he is the creator of all things. He brings forward a better rest, for his rest is forever and is perfect in its completion. He is a better priest, for he is not of Aaron. He's not an ironic priesthood who is a model priesthood for a model tabernacle and a model temple. He is a true and great high priest who enters into the real temple to offer sacrifice before God. And he is a priest who fully struggles with our deepest needs and longings because he is made in every respect like we are only without sin. Everything the tabernacle points towards, Jesus is. You need nothing else. That's a, like a trite thing I think people say and ask you, well, what do you want for Christmas? I don't, I don't need anything. I would like an espresso machine. I don't need it, right? It's true. You really don't need anything. There's nothing here in this world given to you by anyone else in this world that can provide you with what you truly, truly need. What you need is not an espresso machine to make you alive. You need life from the dead. You need rest from strife, peace from chaos. You need nothing less than the very presence of God. And there is nothing, nothing in this world that can ever give that to you. No machine, no amount of love from another human being, no tabernacle, no temple. Nothing can give you that but Jesus Christ himself. So, we sing praises to him, and rightfully so, because that is why we are here. So we can sing, say, preach, and pray the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous, marvelous light. So that those, whether here or far away, who do not know him can see glory and beauty in him and join our happy ranks. Hearing of our joy and our gratefulness, hopefully full of conviction and peace, and hearing us rejoice, they might say, that, that is what I want. Tabernacle is meant to be exceedingly glorious and beautiful. 
The temple was to be exceedingly glorious and beautiful. Laid with the finest of materials, making all of the other achievements of the ancient world pale in comparison. And Jesus is better still. Hold to him, friends, and rejoice, for Emmanuel has come and he is with us. Let us pray. Thank you, God, for the great gift of Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is all we need, certainly all we should want. The fulfillment of all of the promises that you have made, that all that is sad and wrong will come untrue. There is nothing else that we have beside him, for all else is incomparable to him. May we see the glory, the goodness, the beauty, and the glory of our God in the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.